Today's scripture is from Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. Peace be with you. Will you join me in prayer as we prepare to jump into God's word together? Father, we come to you this morning and we come asking and pleading with you that your spirit will be moving. We know he's present, that he will be moving in our hearts as we come to this passage, this truth, this reality of what Jesus has done and endured on our behalf. Father, there's so many things in life that weigh us down, that distract us, that overwhelm us. I know that there are many people, we just saying that there's no condemnation, and I know so many people here this morning, they're feeling condemned. Your word also instructs us that in Christ and through Christ, we become more than conquerors. And I know that so many of us, we don't feel and we're not living like we're more than conquerors through Christ. Lord, we have sin, we have suffering, we have hardship, we have distractions. Our hearts grow numb and our hearts grow cold. And so we pray that your spirit will move, that it will prick the conscience of those whose hearts have grown hard. We pray that he will bring tremendous comfort to those who are feeling condemned. And he will bring hope to those who are in a place where they feel very hopeless. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we pray that through your spirit and through your word, you might do a work in us and among us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The text we're looking at today, it's a very famous passage on an all-too-relevant topic, and I think it's very timely that we're looking at this text today, and I'll get into that in, in a moment, but the topic is temptation. And temptation is something that we all know a decent amount about, that every one of us has experienced. But I think when it comes to temptation, a lot of us have a lot of ideas that I would say are not drawn from the scriptures. They're misconceptions. They're lies. They're deceptions about this concept of temptation that are fed to us, either by the sin in our own hearts or by things in the culture, and one of the, the great misconceptions that I see surrounding this idea of temptation is that many people view temptation as a sign of spiritual weakness, 
They think, if I just had more faith, if I trusted God more, if I didn't have so much sin in my heart, then I wouldn't be so tempted as I am. And before we get into the particulars, it's important for us to put this passage, this text, in the right context, because this is the very beginning of Matthew 4. And do you remember how Matthew 3 ends, if you were here last week, when Pastor Chad preached? Matthew 3 ends with Jesus being baptized. If you remember the scene, he goes to John. John baptizes him him. as he's being baptized. The heavens open. The Spirit descends upon Jesus like a dove. And a voice from heaven declares that everyone can hear, This is my beloved Son. With him I'm well pleased. That's how chapter 3 ends. Chapter 4 begins with the word then. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Mark tells us that immediately the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. Now this is really significant, and I don't want you to miss it. Jesus is baptized, he receives the Father's blessing, and then immediately he goes into battle. He goes from a place of tremendous comfort and peace to a place of tremendous conflict and pain. He goes from hearing a voice from heaven to hearing a voice from hell. And the voice from heaven spoke once, and the voice from hell drones on and on and on. This text shows us that temptation is most fierce Not when we're floundering spiritually, but when we're flourishing. That's when the real battle begins. And the reason this matters, the reason this is so timely for us, is I'm praying, and we, as your pastors and leaders and staff, we are praying that God would stretch out his hand and do a work in our midst. That he would bring greater conviction of sin, greater assurance of his love for us, that his spirit would move and stir things in us that maybe have grown idle or cold. And if God answers that prayer, and I believe he will, that doesn't mean that temptation, that opposition's going to diminish. It means it's going to increase. I mean, think of Jesus here. (laughs) How many of us, we live with this false notion thinking, if only I lived so well that that the Spirit descended visibly, you know, and I could visibly hear God say, you're my beloved daughter. You're my beloved son. You're the best. I'm so pleased in you. We think, if only I could get that, then life would be great. And what the text shows us is that when that happens, that's when real battle begins. That's when temptation really creeps into your life. And so the first misconception that temptation is a sign of spiritual weakness, it's actually the opposite. Temptation is a sign that the Spirit is at work in your life. And that's why Satan's coming to oppose you. And so we're going to press into this text, and we're going to look at the temptation of Jesus. And we recognize, we need to recognize that some of what happened to Jesus here is unique. But in his temptation, we learn some universal truths about our struggle and battle with temptation. And so we're going to look at it under three headings. Number one, we're going to talk about Satan's strategy of temptation. How does temptation actually work? How does he use it? Two, we're going to talk about our opportunity in temptation, and then we're going to finish by talking about Jesus's victory over temptation 
and what that means for us. But we're going to start with Satan's strategy of temptation. How does temptation actually work? Well, another misconception I think we have is most of us, when we think of temptation, we tend to think of like scandalous things. Money, embezzlement, sex, drugs, booze, that kind of stuff. Yet when Satan tempts Jesus, notice he doesn't use any of those things. When Satan tempts Jesus, he doesn't offer him booze, he offers him bread. Now, even if you're on a keto diet or a low-carb diet, I think we can all agree that bread is not sinful. Bread is a gift from God. So the first thing that Satan offers Jesus is something really good, bread. The second temptation, it's a little more confusing for us, and so I, I want to read it one more time, but Matthew tells us that the devil took him to the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So the temptation, Satan takes Jesus, either physically or you know, in a vision to the top of the temple, and says, hurl yourself off of the temple. Now, for most of us, that's kind of confusing. But we have to remember that this was a real temptation for Jesus. There was something about this that actually was appealing to Jesus. And as we seek to answer, well, what was appealing about this temptation, we begin to understand what Satan was really after. We have to remember Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness. He just spent 40 days alone. In the wilderness, he spent 40 nights sleeping in utter darkness with the sounds of wild beasts out there. And he had heard his father say, I love you. My beloved son, I'm so pleased in you. And then immediately he's, He's all alone in the wilderness, and he's hungry, and he's tired. And so even though the Father said, I delight in you, and I bless you, it probably didn't feel like that in the moment for Jesus. And how reassuring it would have been for him to throw himself off the temple and then gently be lowered to the ground by angels. Like what confidence that would have given him in that moment that God has not abandoned me. He has not forgotten me. Think about having that in the memory bank moving forward in life. Like, well, one time I did this and God came through. That would give you such tremendous faith to fall back on. See, even what Satan's tempting Jesus to here, it's not in itself a bad thing. If the first temptation is a temptation to sustenance, the second is a temptation to assurance. It's like you want to be assured of God's love for you, your father's love for you, and his protection over you. And then the third temptation, Satan comes right down Main Street, and we're told that again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Now, if Satan came to any of us and made that offer, he would be offering something that that would be sinful for us to receive. But the object of temptation here, all the kingdoms of the world, that's the whole reason Jesus came. That's the point. And so in each of these temptations, each of these objects of temptation, not one of them is inherently evil or wrong 
for Jesus. And in the end, he actually gets all of these things. As soon as Satan leaves, angels come and they minister to him. They give him food. At the resurrection, he gets the greatest reassurance of God's love and protection. And then at the ascension, and then the kingdoms. That's what we're praying and longing for, that he's bringing all things under his rule. And one day that will be completed when he comes a second time. So this teaches us that Satan didn't offer Jesus bad things. He actually offered him good things. It teaches us something profound about temptation. In temptation, Satan doesn't so much tempt us to evil things, but instead he tempts us to grab hold of good things in a way that dishonors God. Temptation is when Satan tries us to grab hold of good things that God has said, no, not for you or not yet. And really, if you think about this, this, this makes sense. We got to go deep philosophical for just a minute. But when God created the world, he declared it all good. God didn't create some good things and some evil things. Everything was good. Sin, what it does is it takes all good things and it distorts them. And so what Satan wants us to do is to take good things that God has given us or maybe given the world and then distort them or grab hold of them in a way that dishonors God. So it's not wrong for Jesus to want bread, but it would be wrong for him to not complete his fast. It's not wrong for Jesus to want assurance of his father's love. It would be wrong to put his father to the test. It's not wrong for Jesus to want the kingdoms of the world. It would be wrong for him to grab hold of the kingdoms without first enduring the cross because that's God's design. Satan tempts us to grab hold of good things in a way that dishonors God. So for you, if someone wrongs you, if someone hurts you or hurts someone you love, there is a passion inside you might feel for justice, a longing for justice. And justice is a good thing. But what Satan will do is he'll twist that longing for justice into malice, hatred, bitterness, slander, gossip, so instead of trusting God and longing for him to execute justice, you take matters in your own hand. You take something good and you use it in a way that dishonors God. Really what Satan's trying to do is he's saying, here are these good things you want. God has this plan and it's long and far off because that's the kind of God he is. He doesn't want you to be happy or have pleasure. I've got a shortcut. Follow this route and you can get there quicker and you'll get everything that you want. That's what temptation is. It's a shortcut. You know, years ago, my wife and I were driving from Cincinnati to Winston-Salem to visit a friend. And this was in the old days before we had Google Maps on our phone. We used this thing called MapQuest. Anyone remember MapQuest? And so we're on MapQuest and plotting it in. And basically, it was drive a really long time east and then a really long time south. And I wasn't great in math, but I know that the hypotenuse would be shorter. And so I was like, we've got to find a better way. This, this probably hasn't been updated. We can't trust the satellites and things like that. And so I get out an atlas and a highlighter, like my old man used to. You know, I plot, this is how we're going to go. And my wife, she said, well, maybe we should just trust the computer. Uh, I would have nothing to do with it. And so 
three and a half hours into the drive, she's like, are you sure we're on the right place? And I'm like looking at the atlas and pretty sure. Well, all I can tell you is we ended up in Hazard, Kentucky, and no exaggeration, we are on a gravel road, eight people barefoot walking down the gravel road, and we're in my wife's Honda Accord, which had a custom baby blue paint job for some reason, rolling through, and they all just looked at us, shook their heads. You don't belong here. <laughs> what should have been a seven-hour drive took 12 hours. The shortcut didn't quite work. We still do that today, right? You look at your phone, and Siri or Google tells you, here's the fastest route. And instead of trusting the millions upon millions of dollars that have been you know, invested into satellites and monitoring the traffic, at least some of us, maybe more men, we're like, no, I think I can get there faster than this is saying. And it never works out. Well, that's what Satan's trying to do. He's trying to say, yeah, yeah, that's a good thing, and God's promised it to you, but if you go the way God has told you to go, it's going to take you way too long. Seize it now. In temptation, Satan always wants to take us off the path that God has for us. That's his great goal. And I want you to look at me for a minute, and I want you to hear me very clearly. Satan's aim in tempting you is not simply to get you to sin. That's part of it, but that's not his ultimate aim. Satan's ultimate aim and tempting you is to pull you away from God. You guys with me on that? It's not just to get you to do something bad. It's to take your eyes off of God and to set your affections on something other than God. That's what he's after. Satan, he's not longing to watch Jesus eat bread. He's longing to see Jesus betray his father. His goal was to get Jesus to mistrust his father so that he might veer off the path that God had for him. And so that's why Satan can use anything to tempt you. You know, he can use heroin or alcohol or pornography, or he can use simple games on your phone or even your job or your family. He doesn't care which one as long as it gets your eyes off of the father because that's his strategy. We tend to like great things. This is kind of bad. This is really bad. Satan's like, if it pulls them away from the Father and it destroys, it's great. That's his strategy. And you got to understand his strategy before you can understand what I mean by saying the opportunity. Because Satan's goal is to drive a wedge between God and us, to lead us to distrust God, just like he did in the garden. Did God really say? He's such a killjoy. He doesn't want you to enjoy anything or have any fun. That's his goal. When you understand that, then you understand the opportunity, which is point two. One of the, the interesting things in this text that's easy to miss is in verse one, Matthew tells us that Jesus was led up by who? The Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by who? The devil. Jesus gets the baptism. The Spirit's like, here's where I want you to go. Jesus follows. He ends up in the wilderness. And then Satan is there ready to tempt him. Now, this is really important. It's important, one, to recognize that nothing Jesus is going through here is happening outside of the Father's will or the Father's plan. So it is with all of us. 
God is sovereign over this temptation. Yet at the same time, we know that God doesn't tempt us. James 1, James writes, let, the one, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. God doesn't tempt. God doesn't lure people with sin. And yet at the same time, God the Father, through the Spirit, led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And so it leads to this question, like, what's going on here? Is, is God basically hiring Satan out as a subcontractor to do the dirty work while he wants to keep his hands clean? And of course the answer is no. The word translated tempt in our translation, elsewhere it's translated as test. It could be, be, meant, it could be translated as kind of like put through the fire. And while God never tempts people towards evil, that's reserved for Satan and demons, God often will allow people and ordain people to be tempted by Satan, to be lured by evil. He'll use that for good. He'll use what Satan means for evil for good. And this is the book of Job. Satan wants to do evil, and God sovereignly allows it because God is going to bring good out of the evil. This is what we see with Paul when Paul talks about the thorn in his flesh. Do you remember what he called that thorn? A messenger from Satan. He's like, God, get rid of this messenger from Satan in my side. And God says, no, I'm going to use it to teach you some very important things that you wouldn't learn otherwise. Now, if you're tracking with me, God is using Satan's evil temptations for our good to put us through a fire. Well, why would you put something in a fire? Why would you put it? Let's say you have a receipt, you know, for donuts that you bought. You throw it in a fire. What's going to happen? It's going to get destroyed. But what if you have gold and you put it in a fire? What happens? The impurities are separated from what's pure, and you can actually refine the gold. What happens if you have pure gold, though, and you put it in a fire? Nothing. It just gets hot. And its purity is revealed. Well, God put Jesus through the fire of Satan's temptations to prove his purity and his sinlessness as the Son of God. God puts us through the fire of Satan's temptations in order to purify and refine us in this life now. It's a common image in the scriptures. Because God just doesn't care about our eternity, he cares about who we are today. He cares about our character. Like any good father, he wants to see us grow up into wise, strong people who live a life that blesses other people. And so he will sovereignly allow Satan to tempt in order to test and refine us. Now I say all that to say, if, if you're with me, you'll see that temptation, every time we're tempted, it's actually an opportunity. Because in temptation, Satan wants to drive us away from God, drive a wedge between us and God. But God, his goal in testing is to pull us closer to him and to strengthen our trust and our hope and our faith in him. And if you understand that's God's heart, it can radically transform how you understand temptation and how you face temptation. One, if you, if you understand that God has ordained it to grow you, you'll stop equating temptation with sin. That's one thing that'll change. 
All too often, Christians equate temptation with sin. We think that if we're tempted to sin, that's a sign of our sinfulness. That's a sign of our sin. But to be tempted by sin is not a sign of your sinfulness. To be tempted by sin is a sign of your humanity. Because Jesus Christ, who was perfect and holy and sinless, he was tempted. And so if you feel tempted to sin, that means you're human. But all too often we equate the two. Well, if I'm tempted, well, sometimes we even think being tempted, that is, a, that is a sin. Jesus himself, he said, temptations to sin are sure to come. Luke 17, they're sure to come. They're an inescapable part of life. The question isn't, are they going to come? The question is, how are you going to respond? And what Satan likes to do is he likes to get in our ear when we're tempted and say, you're tempted by that? You're kind of miserable. You're having those thoughts? You're thinking of doing that? You're disgusting. You're so sinful. But temptation and sin are not the same thing. But when we believe those lies, when we equate one with the other, what typically happens is we just kind of give in. We quit resisting. Well, I've already sinned. Who cares? I've already had those thoughts. Might as well see them through. And we wave the white flag before the battle's even really begun because we think we've already lost. But when you understand that temptations come through the sovereign hands of God to grow us, one, you'll stop equating temptation with sin, and two, you'll learn to not fix your eyes on the object of the temptation, but instead you'll fix your eyes on God. And I see this, I talk to people, I've seen in my own life that when we're tempted, a lot of times we kind of fix our eyes on whatever it is we're tempted by, <laughs> and we think, I am going to conquer this. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be stronger and wiser than the temptation. Well, anytime you fixate on something, you get tunnel vision. And I'll tell you, in temptation, at least in my own life, when, when you get tunnel vision, that's when you really start, like, arguing with the temptation. Like, well, here's the pros and cons. You kind of draw out the list, cost, benefit. And by that point, you've lost. But that's what Satan wants. He wants you to fix your eyes on the temptation. When you understand God wants to grow us in faith and trust and hope, you learn that when temptation comes, you don't stare at the temptation, but you look to God. And you ask him, God, what are you trying to grow in me? What are you trying to refine in me? What are you trying to reveal about me? And that's how you navigate temptation in a way that honors God and is good for your own growth. You know, not too long ago, I was out hiking with my kids. We came to this tree that had fallen over a stream. It was about, I don't know, a six or seven foot drop from the tree into the stream. And my oldest kids, like, just excited, running back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. My second youngest, Everly, she's four. She, she wants to do everything her older siblings do, even if she can't do it, or she's, she's a very demanding, she's going to be a very strong leader someday, but she's like, I want to do it. And so I'm like, okay. Uh, and I got down in the stream just in case. And so I'm giving her instructions, telling her what to do. And she gets halfway out, and just as you would imagine, she looks down and kind of recognizes that that's, it's like twice as far down as she is tall. Like it's a pretty big fall for a four-year-old. And she starts freaking out. 
She keeps staring down, staring down. Finally, I like climb up on the tree and get right in front of her. And I'm like, stop looking down and look at me. Listen to my voice. She's like, just take me off the tree. No, you know why I wouldn't take her off the tree? Because I want her to be able to cross trees like that. I'm like, you're gonna listen to my voice and we're gonna get through this. And she did, she made it to the other side. By the end of that afternoon, she was running back and forth across the tree. No fear whatsoever. Kind of terrified me a little bit near the end. <laughs> Slow down there. So it is with us. When you understand the opportunity, you won't fixate on the temptation. You'll look and listen and obey. Because the next thing you know, you might actually grow and be a different person than you were before it. In every opportunity, in every temptation, there's an opportunity to grow and trust and love for God. And God sovereignly appoints them in our lives to challenge our growth. And so the question becomes, okay, well then, you know, if you're a believer in the spirits and you should be saying, okay, how do I take advantage of the opportunity? How do I respond well? And that's where we get to the third and last point, Jesus' victory over temptation. And I would say, what we see in Christ here, Jesus, he models a way for us and he makes a way for us in regards to temptation. He models a way for us in how to respond, but then he makes a way for us when we fail. What I mean is this, he models a way. What did Jesus do in the face of Satan's temptation? He didn't fixate on the object of temptation. He wasn't drooling over different pictures of bread or thinking, I couldn't make croissants and they would be amazing. He doesn't go there. What does Jesus do with each temptation? It is written. It is written. It is written. He fixes his eyes on his father's word and he actually wields it like a shield to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Again and again it is written. He depends on God's word. This teaches us something. To stand against temptation, we don't just need more willpower. We also need God's word. Because God's word reveals God's way, and even more, it reveals his heart. God's word teaches us about ultimate reality, teaches us about who God is, it teaches us that we can trust him, but it's impossible for us to trust him if we don't know him. It's impossible for us to honor him with our lives if we don't know him. You can't trust and you can't honor him who you don't know. And so we need to put ourselves under the word, not so we can check the box and make God love us more because we read the Bible, but because we want to know him. We need to soak ourselves. We need to let the word wash over us. You know, one of the fascinating things about Jesus, who was fully God, yet also fully man, was how immersed he was in the word. In life, to use another parenting analogy, a huge part of parenting is teaching your kid to put a filter over their mouth, right? Like to teach them not to say everything that's going through their head all of the time. Like that's one to save for when we're at home. That's one to keep to yourself entirely. You can say, it's teaching them like, hey, if you're gonna make it in the world, you gotta put a filter on. You can't say everything you're thinking. And we all have that filter. We use it all the time. 
Some of you, the filter's, you know, very clogged and little comes out. Others of you, it's very, it flows freely and a whole lot more comes out. But we all think about what we're saying. And it's usually only in times of great distress or trial that the filter falls off and stuff just pours out. And usually we're not real proud of what pours out, but the filter's fallen off. What's amazing about Jesus is when he's in all these situations when the filter would absolutely fall off, being tempted by Satan or being hung on a cross, what's he doing? He's just quoting scripture. On the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22. Into thy hands I commit my spirit. I think that's Psalm 31. It's like when the filter comes off and the pressure comes, what comes out of Jesus? God's word. Because he'd saturated himself in it. So too must we immerse ourselves in his word so that when Satan comes with his lies, when temptations come, we might be able to say it is written. Here is God's desire. Jesus models a way for us, but he does more than that. Jesus also makes a way for us, especially when we fail the test. Because the last thing I want to do is give you this sermon, like you can win in your battle against temptation when I believe you actually can win a lot of the battles. But you're, you're going to lose some, too. That's just doesn't mean you shouldn't fight. I think you can make progress, but we're constrained. Our bodies are falling. We live in a fallen world. You're going to lose some as well. And the last thing I want is for you to like walk out of here. All right, I've got my strategy. I'm going to go closer, closer to God. And then you know, you're quoting scripture, but eventually maybe you give in or you give in in a moment of weakness. And then you feel even worse because I gave you all these tools and you didn't use them. And you're a disappointment to me and everyone else, right? That's what goes through our minds. That's where you have to see Jesus. He doesn't just model the way, he makes a way. One of the things that's easily missed by us but wouldn't be lost on the original readers are all of the allusions to the Old Testament that Matthew's making here. Even the scriptures Jesus quotes from the book of Deuteronomy. And Matthew's showing us, one, that, that Jesus is the true and better Israel. Israel spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness. Well, Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness. Israel put God to the test and they grumbled and they complained and they demanded bread, but Jesus trusted in his heavenly father. And so there's some connections that Israel failed, but Jesus succeeded. But you can actually go, go back even further than that, all the way back to the very first temptation. Genesis 3. And you can actually, you can see a lot of parallels and really they're contrasts between Genesis 3 and Matthew 4. See, in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, they're in paradise. Matthew 4, Jesus in the wilderness. Adam and Eve, they have each other. They're naked and unashamed. Jesus is in the wilderness and he's all alone. Adam and Eve were free to eat from any tree in the garden but one. Jesus wasn't allowed to eat anything and he fasted for 40 days. And yet when Satan came to Adam and Eve and offered them the forbidden fruit, they succumbed to the temptation, and through their sin, they brought death upon the entire human race. Jesus, though, comes as the second Adam, the better Adam, and when temptation comes, he resists, 
and he brings life and salvation for all who would trust in him. See, this passage teaches us how to resist temptation, but even more, it teaches us about our champion who's gone before us, our substitute who has done what we could never do on our behalf. Jesus, he doesn't just model a way, he makes a way. And I want to close by saying this. It's really important you see this because temptation is just one of the tools in Satan's toolbox. Temptation, I don't even think it's his favorite tool. I, usually, I think Satan, he always uses temptation as a means to a greater end. In the life of a believer, he wants to tempt you to sin so that he can actually condemn you and accuse you. I don't know about you, and I don't want to be too self-revealing, but when I'm tempted to sin, in the temptation, it's like everyone's doing it. It's so much fun. It's not a big deal. Just go ahead. That's temptation. And you're like, okay, I'll eat the forbidden fruit. It does look good. Everyone seems to be having a good time. And then after you eat it, what do you hear? You are a miserable wretch. How dare you? How could you be so dumb and foolish? You think God's going to love a sinner like you? Well, that's Satan's, that's like his trademark, right? He minimizes in temptation, but what he's really after is the accusation. What Satan, remember his goal. His goal is to drive a wedge between you and God, your communion with God, your knowledge and your love for God. And so what he loves to do is he tempts you to sin, and then he rubs your nose in it until you feel like you are the most worthless human being, unworthy of God's love, unworthy of anything, make a mockery of the cross. He'll say all of these things to you. Satan tempts so that he can accuse. And when his accusations succeed, what happens? Instead of running to Christ with our sin, like, I need help, I am sinful, we run from him because we're listening to the lie that you are miserable and God would never love you. And even, even the cross isn't big enough for that. And when we're running from Christ, Satan's clapping. That's what he's after. And some of you learned that mechanic a while ago that you run from him instead of to him because you're listening to the accusations. You run from him enough, you get to a place of spiritual despair where you just feel like, I'm never going to be good enough. I'm, Christianity doesn't. And then it leads to a place of resignation where you give up and you just start giving in to this sin. And then eventually resignation, it numbs you to a place of real spiritual apathy. And I think I just described an awful lot of the American church. It's a spiritual apathy. There's no power or boldness or holy longing in your life because you've believed his lies and you're not seeking God's face. The accusations have become too much. And you're not, you might be saved, that's not what I'm talking, but you're not walking with him. And I just want you to know, some of you, you're living in a place of desperation and resignation and apathy. You failed in some ways. Maybe you failed in your marriage. Maybe you failed in a number of marriages. Maybe you failed your family or your friends. Maybe you failed in your job. Maybe you failed in one particular temptation or sin. What Satan is doing when he accuses you is he is wrapping your identity up with that failure. 
saying this is who you are, this fail. You are defined by your failures. And I want you to know that Jesus Christ, he says, no, I've taken all your condemnation. You're not defined by your failures. Paul, it's Romans 8.1. It's one of my life verses. And, and if you struggle with this feeling of condemned, being condemned, that's a great verse for you to memorize. Paul says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I love that verse. He doesn't say there, there's no condemnation for most of you. There's not a lot of condemnation. There's, there's only a, it's there is none. No, zero, zilch. And so what we have to learn is not just to resist the temptation, but when we give in to temptation, we have to learn how to respond to the accusations. And I would tell you, don't try to defend yourself when it comes to Satan. He's a prosecuting attorney with thousands of years of experience, and you are a weak, frail human being. I, love, I read this, it was from a woman back in the 1600s, she talked about this. She said Satan would come and accuse her again and again, and she just couldn't defend herself. And finally she realized that she didn't need to defend herself. Finally she realized that Jesus Christ was her defense attorney. And so when Satan would come with accusations, she would say, I am too weak and too old and too sinful to even handle these. Just take them to my attorney. He's in good with the judge. He's going to plead for me. Hebrews 7. Because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. So when Satan is whispering in our ear, you're a wretch. God could never love you. Jesus is standing next to the Father, interceding for me and for you, saying they belong to me. My cross, my blood purchased them. So if you're in a place of resignation, a place of spiritual apathy, just want you to know God's mercies are new every morning. And the way your life's been going up to this point doesn't have to be the way it's going to keep going. If you're stuck in a cycle of sin, I want you to know God's mercies are new every morning. And you don't have to let that sin continue. God is inviting you through this text to come and know him, to receive the grace and mercy of Christ, to be overwhelmed by his love, and to walk with him and trust him. You can't change the past, but you can change the future. And with what we're hoping and praying God will do in our midst, I want to say, not only does God want you, we need you. We need some Christians who are spiritually alive and hungry to see God's kingdom move. And so it's too important of an issue just to walk away unchanged. So as we move to communion, we remember Christ's blood that was poured out for us and his body that was broken for us. Where are you being tempted? Come and feast and find strength to resist the temptation. Where have you fallen prey to temptation? Come and take the bread, tear it off, and be reminded that your failure doesn't define you, 
What accusations are you believing? Come and dip it into the wine or the juice, knowing that Jesus Christ was stripped naked and he was shamed so that we might be clothed and made whole. If you're in Christ, we encourage you to take part in this. If you're not in Christ, we ask that you not take part in the Lord's Supper, but you take part in Jesus Christ, who went through everything to redeem you. Let me pray. Oh God, lead us to be people who cling to the truth of your word. Let us not be a people who quench your spirit's work in our midst. Father, let us be a people that are so rooted in grace that we can live lives of radical honesty. But may we never misuse that grace as a cover for spiritual apathy or resignation. Lord, I pray for people who are overwhelmed by the lies of Satan. That the truth of your word is declared this morning, declared in song, declared from your word. God, open their eyes. And Lord, I pray that he will continue to do a work among us as we look to your word, as we lock arms with one another, and as we cling to the cross. We ask all of this in Jesus' name.